Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Traumedy Hour. My name is Jonas Barnes. I am your host today. Uh, as per usual right now, uh, Lauren is not on the show at the moment. She's out doing her thing. She's out performing and, uh, you know, getting those stage reps in right now. So she will be back on the show uh, eventually as time uh, allows her to do. But we got a great show for you today. I'm really, really happy to have this guest on. Uh, my guest today is somebody that I had reached out to um, a while ago, actually, when she was traveling the country with her one-woman show, A Carlin Home Companion. Uh, and I saw that show actually on Mother's Day with my mother uh, and then talked to her after the show. And then we stayed in contact after that, and I kind of told her what we do here on the Traumedy Hour, and she's all the way into it, so I'm super happy about that. Um, per usual, also, disclaimer, at the beginning of the show, I am not a doctor. I do not have a degree not a psychologist or a psychiatrist of any kind. However, my guest today actually does have a master's in counseling psychology with an emphasis on Jungian psych. So very, very happy to introduce my guest today. Kelly Carlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Jonas. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you for coming on to the show. I'm really, really happy to have you on here. I think if, uh, if there's anybody that I've talked to so far on the show, that knows about all the type of stuff that we talk about on this show, it is you. So, <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, I think this is, this is definitely a good conversation for us to have. Um, but I did want to, uh, first off, anybody that doesn't know who you are, just a quick bio, just tell them who you are, what you do. Ah, well, I am you know, a I writer. Put you on the spot. <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm a performer. Uh, I also am a teacher. I am currently running uh, a lovely life coaching program, and uh, I'm a podcaster and an executive producer and a wife and uh, the mommy to Stella the Jack Russell. Fantastic. Oh, and I happen to be George Carlin's daughter. Oh, fuck. You know, I forgot about that part. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, this is this is great because you have you've been around so many different things that have to do with the stuff that we talk about here today. And like I said, in the beginning, I had, I met you, fuck, it was years ago um, when you were doing your show and it was in Portland, Oregon. It was on mm -hmm. mother's day. I brought mm -hmm. my mom and it was an incredible show. Um, a Carlin home companion. First off, if anybody has not seen it, I'm sorry. It's an incredible show. Uh, it's, and it's over. It's done. No one can see it ever I know. again. I know it's a fucking <laughs> bummer, man. <laughs> um, what was it that led to that show? Like, what was that something that you had like thought about doing for a long time or was it like an aha moment or what was it that, that led to you to do that show specifically? Yeah, it was something I'd been wanting to do a long time. Um, my mom died in 1997 and uh, too young. She was barely 58 years old and went very quickly from liver cancer. And I, my hero was Spalding Gray, and uh, and I'd certainly seen other solo shows like Julia Sweeney and stuff like that. But Spalding Gray was really my guy, and I'd always wanted to do something like that. And after my mom died, you know, when a parent dies or someone close to you dies in, you know, kind of a quick way uh, or in any way, um, there's a real kind of come to Jesus moment like, oh, I need to get my shit together and do my work in the world. And I knew that telling my personal story was part of that. I just, I, I had longed to, to kind of step into that art form. And so I, I wrote a show and um, I ended up doing it for three nights in a small theater here in LA. It might even have been two nights, but I didn't ultimately do the whole show and everything because it made my dad really uncomfortable because I talked about my parents alcoholism and drug addiction and kind of the effect it had on me. And I don't think my dad had really processed a lot of that. This was like in 99 when I, when I tried to do it. And my dad was like, yeah, I don't think I can, I love you and I'm not going to get in your way. You're an artist, but. Um, I don't know if I can watch I, it. <laughs> right. I can't be in the audience. And, yeah. and I just was like, you know, anyway, codependent and enmeshed with my parents already and then my, you know, my mom's gone. And then my dad's like, I don't know if I can do this. And my dad was like everything to me. And it was like, okay, I don't have to do this. And I, that's when I went to grad school actually and got my master's in counseling psychology. And 
So that was 99, 2000. And then I did a lot of storytelling around LA in the 2000s after I graduated and stuff. And I was becoming a life coach at the time. I, I, did, I decided not to become a therapist. It was just too much for me. Um, and then um, was doing stories around town and stuff. My dad actually did come see me once, tell a story, which was great. Uh, and then my dad died in 2008. And uh, I got invited by Lewis Black, who had become a friend of mine, to come on a cruise ship with him and like, I don't know, 10 of his best friend comedian people. He like oh, four walled nice. a, a lounge on this cruise ship and like Kathleen Madigan and Ted Alexandro and um, John, John Panette and just all these amazing comics were there. That's and a murderer's was like, row right there. Oh my yeah. God. It was insane, yeah. Jonas. It was insane. And um, Lewis is like, I want you and Bob, my husband, to come on board with us. But, you you know, you kind of need to earn your keeps. You need to do an event of some kind. And I'm like, me? Do an event? What the hell? <laughs> He's like, I don't know. You tell stories about your family. Just play some clips of your dad and tell some stories. He's like, that's all you need to do. Don't even, don't even write it. Don't even rehearse it. Nothing. I'm like, okay, can totally do that. Went on board, had like a best of George Carlin DVD picked seven clips and then told family stories around it. There was not a dry eye in the house. People laughed, they cried. And then like every single agent and manager that were on the boat with us walked up to me afterwards. and <laughs> was like, you have to take this on the road. <laughs> and I was like, oh. it was like, I don't want to be George Carlin's daughter in public. Like, right. what, a, what a fucking nightmare that is. Like, it's like everything I ever, you know, all of that, right? But then I started hanging out with Paul Provenza and he and I started talking about what this show could be and what it could mean to my own personal craft and my own personal healing and also what it could be to... George Carlin fans and how they could get to know my father on a different level. Sure. And I was like, Oh yeah, I suddenly saw it. And as you know, you saw the show. And what I used to say to people was people come for the George, but they always stayed for the Kelly. <laughs> yeah. And it's the truth. You know, it really is the truth. Cause I, I've told this like to friends and stuff, um, especially in comedy. Like I was always a person that kind of idolized, you know, your father. And when I was a kid, I was the kid that would sneak up in the middle of the night and I would watch HBO, but I wouldn't be watching porn. I would be watching your dad's <laughs> comedy specials. Right. And like my mom would come down and she would see me watching, you know, one of his specials and she'd be like, ah, shit you're too young to watch that but also i kind of want you to watch it you know mm -hmm. like yeah it was always that type of thing so i grew up as a fan and then i had seen that this show was happening um you know in portland and i also had seen what you had done outside of the show you know just as a speaker and stuff like that like i saw that you had been doing your own thing for sure so when i saw this show coming to portland i was like hey mom do you want to go to this and when we went and saw it it was exactly what you said we laughed mm -hmm. we cried like we hugged each other at a certain point of it it was just like it was one of those things that like you didn't know necessarily what to expect yeah but what you got was so much more than you could have expected oh you know thank you yeah absolutely it's like I, I think of course you know it was something that was cool for you know fans of your father and stuff like that but just to like to see the layers of the life that you had lived you know yeah. as a spectator to his life as well yeah well put. yes <laughs> i mean that's that's really <laughs> the best way i can think to say it you know um and there were stories in it that obviously were hilarious there were stories in it that were heart-wrenching there's stories in it that were infuriating like it just yeah there was so many different emotions that came out of it and also as you know i got older and stuff like that and i dealt with my own struggles with addiction and stuff like that I had remembered stories from the show mm. and you know, it was kind of like in a good way. It was kind of a thing that I would remember back to. And I would remember the stories that you told, but then also some were funny that were things that I would never obviously do. Like I'm not going to get coked out and yell at the bald ones. I don't have, I don't, I don't, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> would I do that in my cocaine days? Absolutely. Would I have the opportunity? No, I would not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
but uh yeah it was it was something that was it was a cool experience also for me and my mom to see it on mother's day um yeah. as well yeah. you know especially with all the stuff that's attached to mother's day also for you you know god yeah absolutely yeah. i feel like that had to be a particularly emotional performance for you i think right oh god yes anniversaries they're easier now it's been 25 years since my mom died but Yes, anniversaries are tough. And then being doing that show was so raw and vulnerable to me because my mom dies. You know, I tell the story of my mom's death and uh, that is always a really difficult part of the show to do and to live through over and over again. So yes, uh, my mother, for the audience, uh, my mother died on Mother's Day. Uh, and I always laugh about it. It's like, really, mom, you didn't think I'd remember that day. <laughs> Like you had to do right. it that way, you know, uh, which, it, and it was also the day before my dad's birthday. So that week is really fun for me now. Oh man. Have to say like real dick move mom. Like really yeah, total, really like really man. <laughs> so one of the, like, I also, um, obviously just watched the documentary that, uh, yep. you know, yeah. you and you and Judd Apatow did. And it's an incredible documentary, by the way. Um, the way that it was put together, the way that it's paced, the information that's in it, the look behind the, you know, behind the person, your stories, like it just, it, as far as documentaries go, fucking top notch. It's one of the best ones I've seen. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that you bring up in it is your own issues with substance abuse. Um, when was that? When, when did that start in your life? Oh, God, I probably started the first time I stole a roach from my dad um, when I was 13 or 14 years old. You know, uh, my mom had gotten sober when I was around 12. And then my dad took him a few years to, you know, he never did cocaine in the house anymore, but he was on the road and still kind of disappearing sometimes and stuff like that. So it really wasn't until I was like 14 or 15. I think that my dad like fully got sober from that stuff. He always smoked pot and, and drank occasional occasionally, but um, I do have to say really quick that it's very sweet of him to stop doing house cocaine. Yeah, just, you know, you nice. <laughs> yeah. Very nice uh, of him. <laughs> totally. House cocaine. I really like that. Um, <laughs> So, but, you know, I was, it was interesting though, in high school, I smoked a lot of pot, like every day. I think I was stoned every day in high school, pretty much for sure. We did Coke. I mean, you know, I was just the late seventies as a teen. Quaaludes were very uh, much still a part of the world in that day. Uh, and, but, you know, and I did magic mushrooms and stuff like that. So I was, you know, definitely addictive personality type of girl, but really then at 18, I met an older man who was very much into cocaine and uh, got, I got really into it. And, um, but I always had a part of me and I think it was because of my upbringing that knew where the line needed to be drawn. Like I didn't, I never did heroin. I never did pills. Um, you know, I did. And plus my body just couldn't take a lot of drugs. So but, you know, more of my addiction was being in deep relationship with fucking batshit crazy addicts. Like that was yeah. my bigger addiction was the codependency game with these people. Sure. And, and, you know, for me, with the cocaine in my 20s, it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly, I can't do this. Like I physically could not do it. And um, started backing away from it after a couple of years of being with my first husband, um, but really watched him spiral into it. So, you know, and now it, as a grown up, like I, I don't really have any, you know, I mean, the pandemic, I drank way too much vodka during the pandemic, but who didn't? Right. I um, think most people. But, <laughs> yeah. But really my thing is like lately has become like watching my emotional eating. Like it all starts from sure. there. Like it's all about trying to put something into our bodies to make us feel better and, or to feel different, right? right? To control what we're feeling inside. Whereas then I think my dad used to have this great line about, you know, the man has a hit of cocaine, has a line of cocaine. And then the new person who's high on cocaine 
wants another line, you know? And so yeah. it's, it's that thing where whatever you're putting into your body, um, it's, it's, you know, it's some way to try to control and regulate something, but in the end, you're just kind of creating more chaos inside of yourself because of it. So, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, it, it's just more subtle these days, but the addictive personality is always lurking somewhere. Yeah. I think the addictive personality thing kind of sticks around no matter what, because I'm like, I'm five years clean now. And in five years to say that I haven't wanted to do those things yeah. would be a complete fucking lie. You know, yep. I'm not going to go to a place and see somebody pull out a line of Coke and not have that little thing in the back of my brain that goes, Oh, you could do just a little bit. No, you can't. No, you can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there like, is no such thing. <laughs> right. Right. I had, a, I had the most destructive rule in the world when I was doing cocaine and it was no cocaine left behind, meaning that I would never take any cocaine home. Uh, if I had, if I had no matter what the amount of Coke was that I had on me, I had to do it before I went home because if I took it home, then I was an addict. You know what I mean? Like it was uh, th this weird brain trick that was like, if you're uh, doing, if you're doing cocaine in bed at home, you're an addict. But if you're doing it at the bar, you're fine. No, I was doing an eight ball and a half a night. Like it was not, there was nothing good about that at all. It was bad. <clears throat> so but that's so typical of our personality is that fucking weird negotiating we do and these weird rules we create to make us feel like, well, I'm not that person at least, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Just made up yeah. rules. Just totally made up bullshit. You know, it's kind of funny also what you talked about. You have a very similar um, trajectory and timeline as my mom did. Because my mom grew up in the 70s as well. Uh, she was a teenager in the 70s. And she actually was a roadie for a lot of the 70s because she left home early and then she went out on the entertainment industry circuit working on working as a roadie working with rock bands and stuff but that's where she started to use her drugs too mm -hmm. was just being around all that stuff a lot of older men a lot of crazy yep. scenarios yeah a lot of <clears throat> a lot of those things and then she got pregnant with me and she stopped everything cold turkey she was mm -hmm. just like oh i'm pregnant i have a kid you know, I'm fucking done with it. I'm done. Yep. So she stopped everything and then she had me. And the thing that was interesting is that with my upbringing, my biological father was the one that was the cocaine monster in the family after mm -hmm. I was born. So mm -hmm. I had to go through how much therapy I would say it took me, <clears throat> it took me 25 years to get to the point where I could go into therapy and figure out my issues with my father from when I was younger. Yeah. And what I really had to finally come to the conclusion of is I had to separate the cocaine monster version of my dad and the regular version of my dad, you know? Yes. Yeah. Because I hated the Coke monster. The non Coke monster was actually a very loving father. He didn't know how to do it. He was shitty at it, but he still loved, you know, loved me and my mom. But then when the Coke monster came out, that was the guy. That was the one that I hated for all those years. So oh, Jonas, I can so relate to your story because this is the story of my relationship with my mother. My mother as an alcoholic, and she was alcoholic pretty early in my life, uh, was obviously alcoholic before I was born too, but um, stayed sober during the pregnancy and stuff. Um, but she, you know, my earliest memories are four or five of her being fall down drunk and she didn't get sober until I was 12. And the amount of resentment I had, um, and she, my mother was a mean drunk. Like she oh, yeah. was Jekyll and Hyde also. And my dad and I used to call her Nazi <clears throat> Brenda. Wow. And <laughs> a lot of my dad and my bonding in my childhood was us trying to wrangle her and control her and to strategize how to be around her and how to function around her and then how to get her sober the last two, two, two years uh, before she got sober, really trying to really man like physically keep her alive um, because she was, she was, she almost died from it. And, um, but I had such resentment and hatred and um, 
just so much baggage from that. And, you know, and my mom was an amazing person when she was sober. Yeah. And, and it just took me a long time. It took until my twenties for her and I to really, I mean, she was there for me as a teen, but I really wasn't willing to really be there, you know, to like reveal all of myself to her. And she bailed, she bailed me out a couple of times of some, some things and stuff. And, but it did, it took me some therapy and some time to separate out those two versions of my mom too. And to, to be able to ultimately forgive her, uh, but to also to really understand that she was a different person when she was, you know, using and, um, and, and yeah, and now I can hold them both, you know, um, and, and still feel for the young part of me that had to endure all of that, you know, still champion her, but um, I so can relate to your story. A hundred percent. It's crazy that you said that she got, you said that she got sober when you were 12 years old, right? Mm -hmm. That's when my dad got sober. Oh, wow. So my biological father got sober when I was 12. Um, and this is kind of, so my biological father died when I was 13, but Mm. he got, he got sober when I was 12 and that's when he reached out to my mom and tried to get uh, partial custody. And my mom was like, the fuck are you talking about? Like, no, you're not getting partial custody. And he was like, no, but I cleaned myself up and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, you can have like visitations like supervised or something then, but like, you're not getting partial custody, you know? Mm. So I ended up getting visitations with him and it took me. I would say it took me at least a good three or four months of like supervised visitations to have my guard even slightly come down. You know, the first three or four months was like, dude, I don't want to talk to you. Like (laughs) you were, you were not good. And then like six months or so into it, I started like let the guard down a little bit more and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it got to the point where, um, as fucked up as this is, the last time that I saw my biological father, we went to a movie. I uh, don't remember what movie it was, but the last thing I said to him was I gave him a hug and I said, I love you and I forgive you. Oh. That was that was the last time I ever talked to my biological father. Oh my God. Wild. Wow. It was absolutely fucking wild. So I had this whole thing that this is what's fucked up about it, though, is that it started a new cycle of a new trauma where it was like, I was just getting to know you and you fucking died. So now I had this new abandonment that was available. Just like (laughs) just waiting there to come right in, you know? (laughs) So it was like fucking sweet years of dealing with that. Now that'll be fun. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Good. What a, what a nice setup for the rest of my life. Gee, thanks universe. Right. Holy shit. So that's why I ended up dealing with in therapy when I was actually finally, you know, allowing myself to actually go through it. I had to go through a lot of drugs before I was finally open-minded enough to go into therapy. And I'm so happy I did. It turned so many things around for me. New York, New York right now is, is being New York sirens. I can hear it as it should be, as it should be. You can never do a podcast live from New York city or (laughs) recorded from New York city and not have New York in the background being like, I'm here. How are you doing? <laughs> you know, just wants to show up, wants to like make a cameo, cameo and peer appearance. Of course, just wants to let you know that the neighborhood is probably on fire somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you obviously have gone through therapy, um, you know, with everything yes. that you've gone through. So uh, <laughs> what many was, times, many what versions. Was, what was your what was your favorite flavor of therapy? I guess I would put it we're talking like psychological, psychiatric. Are we talking like what was your what was your never main did, one that you think helped? Psychiatry never did drugs. Uh, had a Xanax for a very very short period of time when I had panic attack syndrome. Always done talk therapy. Uh, mostly done analysis type of therapy. My first therapist was an analyst. He was my parents' therapist too, which is gee, that's not freaking codependent. Wow. And, yeah, <laughs> it's like not good but it was what it was it was the 70s again I was a teenager um and um yeah I've had a couple of different great therapists and actually just recently walked back into it again like I'm just in a place in my life where I need to kind of integrate some things and some new things have come up and just want to 
handle some things and be like, all right, I need to like check that off the list now. So, but um, thank God my parents were open to it when I was a kid and that it became like my parents were always okay with reaching out and seeking help because I know for so many families and people it's stigmatized still, you know, or people thinking you're crazy or right. um, they think that there's some sort of mind control manipulation, or I don't want to just, I just don't want to, I just don't want to talk about my parents and all that shit. And it's like, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, yes, you're going to talk about your childhood because most of the rules and regulations that you have internalized about life were formed when you were like four, five, and six years old, you know, and, and then some too, but you're the kind of the big ways you kind of see the world and how you decide the world is set up comes with that around that age, when you start to become really conscious of like, how, how do I maneuver my life? You know, you become conscious enough to know that, that you have to please these people that keep you alive. And so you're going to talk about these people, or you're going to at least talk about the mindset or the thoughts or the decisions or the rules that you kind of constructed. We, you know, I talk about it in a sense of like the narrative you constructed at that time about who you are and what the world means to you and what you mean to the world. And from those things, you shape everything. You shape all your decisions going forward, especially, you know, at starting at age like 11, 12, and 13, when you start to actually become more autonomous and start to make decisions for yourself. You know, they're not the big ones, but they can be. Yeah. Um, and so people get really hung up on that. And it's like, yeah, you're not going to, it's not about going and bashing your parents. It's about examining your internalized structures and bringing them into the light of day and really asking yourself, is this true? Do I wanna live in a world that this is how I believe it works? And, and do I have other evidence to the contrary, that that isn't the way the world is constructed? And you know, this is the way we change. This is the, this is the only way we can change is by bringing these thoughts and feelings conscious and making a new decision about how we want to, what filters and perceptions we want to, we want to look at through our lives. And so whether it's life coaching, like I do, I do coaching, um, or you're in therapy, it's ultimately the same conversation, which is, you know, what, what thought is getting in your way? What perspective is getting in your way? And how do you need to step out of it? And therapy does it one way and coaching and other types of programs, spiritual practice and Buddhism and all sorts of things mm -hmm. does it other ways. But ultimately it is about bringing things from the unconscious into the conscious. Yeah. And I love that, you know, like a lot of uh, one of the things that I do when I talk to people about like sobriety and um, recovery and stuff like that. And also even when they're dealing with shit that, you know, mental illness stuff, when the brain ghosts come up and stuff like that. I tell them one things that one of the things that's helped me is the what versus why scenario. Mm -hmm. and, and you know what, what I mean by that when I say it, which I think you're probably familiar with this is the what has already happened. Like the what meaning like you already did the Coke, you already yep. drank the booze, you already did the thing like it already happened. What you need to work on is why you did that. Why, yeah. like, why, why is it that you decided to do that? Why is it that you said, I have to do that? And it goes back to the what I did that to get rid of this, you know, like, there's mm -hmm. always these things that you have to navigate. And I always tell people, like, as far as what worked for me, is that every time I tried to focus on the drugs and the booze, it didn't get me anywhere. Because I wasn't dealing with the actual core problem. Right. You were dealing with the symptom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, when I didn't deal with the actual problem itself, I could tell myself all day long, don't pick up the bottle. Don't pour out that line. Don't do this. Don't do that. But if I wasn't dealing with what was making me want to do it in the first fucking place, it was just like, okay, this is, this is a useless fight. <laughs> I'm fighting, it, I'm fighting the wind. Like it, it, exactly, exactly. And, and the, 
And, you know, and then the other part of that too is, is that once you figure out the why, and there's some sort of insight to that, right? That's the part of the therapy where you have an insight. Oh, I see. I'm trying to fill the void of this because I'm actually afraid of this or whatever it is, you know, whether it's abandonment issues or I was never seen and heard or, you know, whatever it is. And then that's the moment though where people can stay too long and they get stuck in just the insight kind of um, cycle. And they just want to just have more insights and more insights and more insights. And that's where then there has to be some sort of choosing something different. And usually it comes in, in the sense of like, you have to be willing to do a new action Mm-hmm. to to do to move into some sort of behavior that's different um and or really get clear on choosing you know how to no longer be in that storyline because you can have yeah. the insight and stay as a victim for the rest of your life a lot of people like you, if you go to anyone out there who goes to 12 step meetings <laughs> knows oh yeah that, you know, the first couple of years, it's great. And then after the first couple of years, you're like, you sit in the room and you're going, huh, some of these people are <laughs> telling the same stories they've been telling for years. And, mm-hmm. they, and they may be clean and sober, but they're not getting any better. Exactly. Yeah. And that's because they're really stuck in victim mode. And that's when we need to put our big boy and our big girl pants on in our life and say, okay, these things did happen to me, but, but now what? Right. And that's, all, that's also, you know, when you bring up 12 step programs, like I'm not in that anymore, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm five years into recovery. So I, now I use 12 step programs or I use meetings and stuff in a case of if I need one, like if yep. I happen to be out in the world and something triggers that addiction in me and I'm feeling antsy, then I'll go to one. Then I'll be like, okay, I'm going to go be around, you know, I'm going to go be around people. I'm going to get this poison out of my system, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to do that. But I didn't go, I haven't gone to them on a regular basis in a while. But one of the reasons that I stopped doing that is because I started to notice similar to what you were talking about. I started to notice a codependency on the program. Yes, which was very toxic to me. And it that went once the codependency on the program itself kicked in. That's when I was like, Oh, I got to back the fuck away from that right now. Because that could hook me in really badly. You know, yes, to the point where it's like, now you have this new panic where what happens when that program goes away? Have you actually developed the tools to deal with that situation? Right. Or are you now so hooked on to that, that you're fucked if it goes away? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point, you know, and that is, and, and that's, you know, and it's, it's, you know, and I think all recovery is like that, you know, and it's the same thing with therapy, like people can become addicted to having this person they can go to every week and like, you know, and become dependent on that person you know, who's really there to really hear you and see you and all of that. And that's an important aspect of our development is being seen and heard. But at some point, we need to integrate the one inside of us and activate this inner resource within us that hears and sees us and helps us steer our boat through life yeah. uh, by, by being the wise the wise adults or the inner mother or the inner father. A lot of the work I do with clients, you know, because I'm, I'm got this Jungian training is, you know, I work with like inner archetypes and inner aspects of self and the inner family dynamics is really important, you know, and being in touch with your inner child, your inner teenager and your inner mother and your inner father. Mm -hmm. These are all parts of our psyche that keep us whole and are, are kind of how we are shaped as human beings, you know? Um, so yeah, and even having an inner AA sponsor, like the one who just knows what to say to you, right? right. You know, or, you know, it's like, are you hungry, tired, 
and you know whatever angry or whatever those things are you know that they always say to you like you know go eat a meal take a shower and take a nap you know whatever right it is, right you know like yeah. take care of your physical body first and you know you start to internalize those messages and then integrate them and and then they help you you know be be your own program in the end 100 percent. one of the things that my mom told me when i was talking to her about recovery and i was talking to her about um like i'm i'm for all intents and purposes you could say that i'm atheist so mm-hmm. I don't have the quote unquote God part of my life. But when I talk to my mom about that, like higher power, God stuff and everything like that, she's also pretty much the same way. She's she's Buddhist. Um, and that's as far as spirituality goes with her. But what she told me that kind of rung true with me and it helped me a lot is she said the inner voice that's inside of you that always does tell you to do the right thing, even if you push it off to the side, that inner voice is what a higher power is to her. That thing that tells you, no, don't do that. Yes, do this. Like the thing that tells you to go to, you know, to do the right thing, to be the good person, to, you know, to take care of you. Like she's like that subconscious, you know, is the spiritual version of, you know, whatever you want to call a higher power. Yeah. And in Jungian uh, theory, uh, Jung came up with this concept of the self with a capital S. So there's self with a small s and self with a big s. And the self with the small s is more connected to the ego. And the ego is important to have a healthy ego because it helps us function in the world. But it's only, it's only the conscious part of yourself. And the self with a big s is that which is bigger than the ego, that knows more than the ego ultimately, and is connected to the collective wisdom uh, of humanity in a sense. So it is anything bigger than ego is usually how I talk to people about it who are more, uh, in the, in the atheist leaning area, or, you know, certainly don't believe in a sky God and things like that. Um, you mean the big cloud grandpa (laughs) cloud grandpa? Yes, absolutely. Uh, but he loves you, but he wants your money too. Uh, anyway, just had to do that. But, um, and so that so that's how we kind of think about it in in depth psychology terms is anything bigger than the ego. So that's the same thing. That is that part of ourselves, that voice that is very much grounded in reality, uh, but knows you know knows that the ego can also you know get hooked into things. Of course, for you know because it ego is wrapped up also in. Um, safety and security and reputation and power and things like that. So, yeah, I I love that your mom puts it that way. That's very, very cool. Yeah. She's, you know, she's always been somebody that kind of, she's definitely the type of person that um, for sure lets people believe what they want to believe. She doesn't cast any kind of judgment on that whatsoever. The only time she ever has any kind of a raised eyebrow towards it is if somebody's using that belief to be a piece of shit, then she's like, for sure. It's like, then I don't think you're doing it right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) (laughs) totally. I think you missed a fucking step there. (laughs) Yeah. I think when people use that power or whatever they call it, um, in order to affect other people, uh, you know, that's when you have to be careful. You know, that's why there is something called separation of church and state. Um, for sure. At least there used to be. (laughs) <laughs> yeah doesn't seem to be the case too much anymore they seem to sneak that in there quite a bit it's a, it's a slippery slope these yeah days. yeah so you've obviously dealt with you know with life coaching and with counseling with everything like that you've obviously done a lot of work on yourself you've done a lot of work on you know dealing with your past and everything like that so that leads me to the question of how how much of a challenge was it to be involved in the documentary as much as you were because obviously you were interviewed on it you had a very heavy hand in the you know in the production of it and everything um but there's even parts where you broke down when you were talking on camera and stuff was that a challenge to the work that you've done um with yourself like was it difficult to go through well first of all just to clarify i did not have a heavy hand with the production um i thought you did I was an executive producer, but I basically, we hired Judd to direct it. And, um, and then his production company took over. 
And I had very little to do with it. I was interviewed for it. And then I did give him notes on the rough cut. Um, I I knew, but, and I gave him access to people and we gave him access to the archives. Uh, And I helped him find people and stuff like that. But um, other than that, I was not in charge of shaping the narrative at all. That is really Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio's amazing, their genius in it. Uh, but they had marching orders also. Sure, I wanted I mean. it to be unique. I, I didn't <laughs> want it to be, I didn't want it to be a cavalcade of talking heads and I wanted it to be groundbreaking like my dad was, you yeah. know, no, no biggie. Good luck, Judd. Yeah. You know, um, like no pressure at all. <laughs> no pressure at all. No. And really, you know, and then, and the lovely thing is that, you know, Judd really, his whole impetus was to make me happy. Um, and that was lovely of him, but we also said warts and all like make this man take him off the pedestal he's a human being so tell his human story and and i didn't know how much they were going to lean into the family story and all of that and i was really pleased to see that they did okay now as far as sitting down for the interview um first of all it was during the pandemic uh it was very weird it was late 2020 was my first interview and then kind of three uh, about halfway through 2021 was my second interview um, so that was weird in and of itself because I, we were just all, who was in their fucking body? Nobody was in their body <laughs> right, during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. But as you know, I had been working my family's story and the narrative in such a way I've been working it since, you know, a long time, yeah, a yeah. long time, 20 years. And, um, and it, you know, and it showed up in my own storytelling and then in my solo show and then in my memoir, so I'd mm-hmm. been, you know, I'd been in it. I knew it all and and was really was very touched that, you know, Judd really used my my memoir to really source and, you know, to shape that part of the story. Um, but of course, uh, the minute you sit down to tell it again, and I had not sat and told any of my stories for I think I did my last solo show in 2016. So it'd been a while. Yeah. And um and then just knowing that that this was really going to be like the record, you know, of my my family's story. So right. so that was it that was interesting um for me. And um and yeah, whenever I go to tell those stories, um I'm in it. And of course Michael Bonfiglio was the one who did the interviews and he's just this genius at creating such an amazing warm safe space for that. And, and, you know, and really ask the right questions to, to have me be able to really be in it and tell it and, and, and let the, and let the heart and the humanity of the story come through. Um, And there was an interesting moment though, where during the second interview day, he showed me a clip of my parents and the clip ends up in the documentary and it's that clip where my parents are together on some sort of a weird talk show and they're talking about and they're talking about drugs and alcohol and it's 1969 and um my mom is fucked up in that clip and um i had never seen movies or tape of my mother in that state i'd only had very fleeting memories of that because it was such a traumatic time for me that I didn't have a lot of straight memories of it. I had a lot of kind of somatic kind of intonation memories, but um, to see my mom on camera loaded like that uh, and then talking and then talking about it and her, and she even says my dad at that point had just given up cigarettes and alcohol He gave up cigarettes permanently, but I think it was probably, you know, it was his, one of his attempts to like, you know, clean his act up or whatever. And this was before the cocaine days. Sure. And, um, and my, my, my dad says, I quit something and something. And then they said something like Brenda's doubling up for us. And it was just, it was like this weird multidimensional personal moment for me because it was like, that's a truth. That is a devastating truth. Seeing my mother fucked up on camera, feeling the tension between them, 
in that moment, knowing how hard it was for my dad to be around my mom like that, just, it was like 25 layers for me. And so they showed me that clip. And in the moment, I was kind of like, oh, wow, that's fascinating. That's interesting. Look at my mom's hair. Look at her makeup. Da, 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 da. And then I like, after the interview, I said to Michael, can you send me that clip again? And I, and I watched it again and again. And that is something that almost actually threw me back into therapy Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in that moment, because that little girl inside of me, it was like that I, I had to face the, the way it feels when you're around, when you're a little kid and you're in the midst of that stuff. And it feels like there's no solid ground underneath your feet because the grownups aren't really there. Ooh. And that opened back up for me, that feeling. And I had to kind of find my, it took me a few weeks to find my way through it. And I did. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it was a weird, it was a weird moment for me for sure. And just goes to show you, you know, after decades of, of working on yourself and, you know, and, and feeling really solid and really have, you know, moved on in my life in many, many, many ways for that little wound to be opened again. Um, it's always there. Our wounds are always there. The key is, is what he, like you kind of said before about the recovery thing, knowing what's brought up, knowing when the wound is brought up and what you do to take care of yourself and to recenter and to find your feet back on the ground again. That's, that's the chore of the adult is always to be in recovery because our traumas will always be there. Our triggers for our addictions will always be here. But what inner resources and external resources do we have um, to help us move through that precarious time where we feel like we're kind of losing ourselves and, and losing our ability to, to stay on track? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's definitely the truth because I think if when when something does come up that kind of brings you out of, I guess you could call it your comfort zone at that point, once you're yeah. comfortable in your recovery and you're comfortable, you know, in your own skin again. And when something kind of sucks you out of that skin and makes you look down at it, you know, what is it that you have inside of you that, you know, is the thing that you can fall back on or tap into, however you want to put it, the thing that kind of recenters you and brings you back in which is actually a good transition to one of the things that I wanted to say here when the whole reason that when me and Lauren decided to do this show, because we do like a live comedy version of it where mm -hmm. most of our jokes are about all the things that fucked us up, you know, yeah. like, so <laughs> that's what we do about the jokes. And that's why we call it the Tromedy hour, because when people come to that show, we want them to understand that the stuff that we're going to talk about is going to be harsh realities, you know? Yeah. It's yep. going to be the addictions. It's going to be the assaults. It's going to be the past. It's going to be the things that made us who we are today in the situation, you know, in on the, obviously in the guise of comedy. So we're going to be doing those things, but we're going to be bringing levity to it as well. But one of the biggest reasons that we wanted to do it is because mental health, addiction, trauma, grief, all those things are so stigmatized about talking just about them in public. Yeah. So with you, with with all the life coaching and everything that you've done, how long have you been, how long have you actively been doing life coaching? Uh, I graduated, got my master's in 2004, had another year of internship as a therapist and knew at the end of that internship that I was going to walk away from being a therapist. And in 2006, got certified as a life coach and started my business then and did my business for about three years. I think it was like 2010 is when I closed my first version of it. And that's when I focused on my solo show and stepped into my craft and doing that part of my life, my creative expression. Uh, and then I came back around to it again uh, in 2018 and launched uh, what was called Women on the Verge at that time. And Women on the Verge is now being morphed into On the Verge uh, because I am opening it up in the fall uh, to both men and women, the work oh, I've nice. done. And I've, and I've spent four years in, this, in doing this program and creating it and have created a curriculum now. I have, it's a year-long coaching program. 
and uh, I've created some content and some curriculum, people like some steps and modules for people to walk through while at the same time, they're also doing uh, group community calls where we do some group experiential exercises and, and support and things like that. And then on top of that, there's one-on-one -on -one coaching either with my, some, a couple of coaches that I work with um, or myself. And, um, but I, you know, I've, and I started off with the women's because that was always my dream coming when I left Pacifica, because a lot of my work was around, um, you know, how women internalize the patriarchy and not just like the, you know, not just the systemic cultural patriarchy, but just kind of the patriarchy in the sense that of like, you know, we all have this, this self as we grow up, that's, you know, internalizing the rules of the culture sure. and every single person I know, and so much what gets batted around, especially for women, but it's really true for men too, but men just don't talk about it this way is people feel that their authentic self is censored. And that really comes from this idea of how we, how we internalize the culture and the rules and the regulations of the culture. And our culture happens to be built on a patriarchy. So that's why it's an internalized patriarchy. And, and so it's perfect really, sense, by the way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sense. And so that's why I really loved working with women because as a woman, I too felt like, you know, just, it was harder for me to find my voice and, and never mind my dad's shadow and all of that. I mean, that right. obviously made it, made it extra hard, but women in general have a hard time finding their voice. And I think finding our voice is a really, really important expression of our soul and, and, and our unique gifts and what we're here to bring to the world. And as an artist, that's my jam. So, yeah. And, and because I'd done the healing on myself already and really studied this stuff academically and experientially, you know, I knew for sure the conversation I could have with women. What's really come to light the last few years is when I have these conversations out loud and in public, you know, and I usually have it on podcasts. Um, and, it, and, and many of the times the podcast people are men, they say to me, well, when are you going to work with men? Because we need this too. Um, yeah. <laughs> to and, be fair, we do. <laughs> You do. Yes, yeah. because we all need it. And right. we're all coming out of the patriarchy. I mean, that's what this is what this, you know, whatever you're calling it, postmodern, post-capitalism, uh, post-apocalyptic, yeah, you know, whatever you want to call this we're living through right now. Um, it's it's insane. And clearly patriarchal values of the last 2,000, 25,000 years have gotten us far, but it has also really really made it an unhealthy toxic planet so i mean that's kind of, yeah you've heard what i've talked about so you know that most of my problems are linked to men so like yeah. i totally get it i 100 get it love men and men are essential and men are half the equation and there is no yin without my your yang you know yeah. um but there is a way of thinking that we call patriarchy that unfortunately puts the onus on men uh, and, you know, white men, but, you know, there's patriarchy in other cultures too. I mean, it's authoritarianism is ultimately what it is. Right. Um, and it's about power and all of that. And, and 100%. But, but, but there's also, you know, I also have part of what I teach women is how to get in touch with their healthy masculine. <laughs> Because you need that energy too. You need the hero energy. You need the warrior energy to move out into the world and create things. I mean, I could have not done my solo show without ambition and will, you know, which is, which is an aspect and can be considered an aspect of a more of a masculine trait than sure. a feminine trait, you know, and I hate those two words because they don't really work anymore, anymore either. And we're trying to find new language for that. Right. But that's the exciting conversation I'm having now. And so, so now I've been doing this other, so I've been working this. And so I've also, also have like a 12 week course called true North, which is kind of the bones, the kind of the nuts and bolts of what are the basics in my program, but it's a quick kind of experiential of it. Um, so yeah, I'm always creating new stuff like that. And, but my dedication is really to help people find within themselves the ability to move beyond their original narrative that keeps them small, that keeps them limited, that keeps them from being, being in full voice, 
that keeps them from what I call it, their authentic agency. And uh, because I really believe that the more we all are in our authentic agency, the more we are going to do the work in the world that is going to lift everyone up. And so I'm not a politician. I'm not a philanthropist. I mean, I am a philanthropist with you know a little <laughs> bit I have, but you know, right. I'm not a billionaire. You know, I'm not an inventor or things like that. But this is really my way of feeling like how I know how to contribute to the larger conversation of getting our species to wake up and getting our species to lean a direction that isn't purely self-destruction. I absolutely love what you do. I mean, you know, both obviously what you've done creatively with art and with speaking and with, you know, with your show and what you do with helping people, um, you know, you do a lot of incredible stuff. You really do. And um, of course, you know, it's, I think it's something that people do need to, um, you know, people definitely do need to talk more about and it's a conversation that needs to be had more. And especially like, if you look in 2022, a lot of things that get put around, you know, get a term that gets thrown out there a lot is toxic masculinity. Yeah. And I've talked to friends about that because again, my past uh, links to me disliking men on a, on a psychological level, because that's the base of what my trauma is. But that doesn't mean that I don't have friends that are men. That doesn't mean that I don't, you know, look up to men, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that I've talked to people about with the term toxic masculinity is a lot of times it's something where they are resistant to accepting an internal femininity as well. So like, you know, they won't, they're afraid to experience emotions. They're afraid to be nurturing. They're afraid to be paternal. You know, they're afraid to have that motherly nature, um, you know, or fatherly nature, whatever it is. Yeah. But it's something that they're afraid to do. And because of that fear, it manifests into an almost ugly hyper-masculinity. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the way I try to break it down to my friends sometimes if they've been called, you know, um, somebody who is experiencing toxic masculinity. I'm like, I think this is why it's because like you talk shit to your friends. If they cry, like don't fucking do that. Like, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that's only due to their own training. Someone, someone imprinted that on them. Someone installed that software in them. Yes, you know, we, we, yes, exactly. And this is about all of us breaking. You know, I think that's one of our jobs as adults is to break the generational trauma that all of us have, you know, and part of mine was codependency and, and hiding my light and hiding my truth. That's something my mother did. And she ended up, you know, pouring scotch down her throat, you know, like that was her way of, of dealing with it. And, you know, and, and all these ways in which our, our families and, you know, they all did the best they could. Our parents did the best they did. Uh, The grandparents, the great grandparents, all of them all the way back. But if in each generation, I really do it, it is our job because we are evolving beings Mm -hmm. is to move the bar forward a little bit more and to face these things that we were taught and to understand that, you know, it is not only is it going to make our lives feel better and we're going to feel less depression and anxiety, which is really good. Mm -hmm. uh, But then we're also going to make our families whole and feel better. And we're going to be kinder to strangers and, and the ripple effect happens, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because, you know, some of these toxic, some of these people who, you know, kind of uh, embody this toxic masculinity, um, you know, no one talks about toxic femininity, sure. you know, and, and what is that, you know, and what does it mean to be like smothered by the mother, you know, and things like that and helicopter parenting and all that kind of thing, you know, there's mm-hmm. a whole other kind of like my, you know, my dad's rejection of his mother, because she was so controlling and so, you know, toxic in her own way. You know, there's a lot of famous comedians who had very toxic mothers. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can usually hear it in their act. You, can, you do. You yeah. Do. You're like that. Um, so- that joke had some venom on it. I wonder where that one came from. <laughs> you know, 
And I think the hardest part for all of us is to, you know, there's some part of us that wants to take it personally, you know, whether it's the toxic masculinity or the this or the that or whatever the terms, the culture seems to throw around, you know, um, and, and to understand that it, it, there's nothing, it's not personal, that it's actually people trying to understand a phenomenon that's happening in the culture. And um, it's our, when we take things personal like that, it usually means that it's something that we need to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are coming to the end of this. Um, unfortunately, I, I feel like we could literally talk for hours about this stuff, but uh, you know, we, we all have things to do. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I do want to ask one last thing here before we wrap this up. With all of your experience with counseling, with, uh, you know, life coaching, with uh, all the people that you've been around, um, for people that are hesitant to make that step to see a therapist or to mm -hmm. see a counselor or to get in that recovery program or to put down that bottle or whatever the case may be, for people that are hesitant to do that, what kind of advice would you have for somebody who's experiencing fear of making that step? Mm -hmm. Well, I think for each one of us, it's a very personal decision, but ultimately it comes down to believing that you deserve something different and that whatever you're suffering with does not have to be permanent. That normally what we're going through, you know, can feel like a prison and a, a permanent prison, but that there are so many different modalities out there and so many different interventions of things. Um, and that you might not find the right one right away, but there is a path forward. And the first path is letting someone know that you're suffering. That is the scariest moment because that's the most vulnerable moment because a lot of us have judgment. We think we're supposed to be perfect. We think we're supposed to know better. We think we're supposed to be um, above this kind of a thing. You know, whatever it is, there's some sort of a thing, an idea of who we are. We're trying to keep our reputation intact in some way. Yeah. And what every person I know who's, who's put that down and said to someone, I'm scared, I'm, I'm having this symptom, I'm, I'm feeling this way, I'm having these thoughts, I'm miserable. Um, it, you, you do have to put your pride down. And but at the minute you do that, and there's someone there to listen to you, it's like walking in through a door. It's like that version of in the Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to color. Ooh. That's it's, a good it, analogy. Yeah, it's like that because you have now entered a different world, one in which you are allowed to be broken and loved at the same time. And, um, and just know, sometimes it's just a first conversation to let someone know that you're having a difficult time and that, you know, you, you need some help, but you need to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Oh, that's very much the truth. Yeah. You, you are allowed to be broken and loved at the same time. This is why we do this show. God damn it. That's the show. This is why we do it right there. It's lines like that, that I think people need to hear because it's, I don't think that there's a more true statement, you know, yeah. that you are allowed, you are allowed to be broken. Like it's yep. okay to not be okay. Like, and yeah. I know that a lot of people throw that term out there as kind of a cliche, like, Oh, look at the motivational poster on my wall. Like, no, it fucking totally is okay to not be okay. And it is, it you is. know, also and to be is. loved while you're not okay. Yeah. And then the recovery is learning to love yourself when you're not okay. And, yeah. you know, and as, as a recovering perfectionist, that is my <laughs> life path. <laughs> Oh, a recovering perfectionist. I, I know that pain all too well. <laughs> um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Kelly. Um, Thanks for really. reaching out 
a million times and i just this is a lovely conversation yeah this was this was um this was really great i really appreciate you coming on um for people that want to see what you're doing uh see your life coaching uh for anybody that wants to sign up for one of your courses anything how do people find you online these days so um if you're interested it's not up yet but my kind of year-long program stuff is on a website called womenontheverge.coaching.com. Okay. And uh, that's an application program. You have to apply to get into the program. Okay. Uh, and then, but my website is the Kelly Carlin site. Someone else had my name. Fuck them. <laughs> and, uh, and then find me on Twitter. I'm at Kelly underscore Carlin, K-E-L-L-Y. And I hang out on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. Fuck Zuck. And, um, and I'm a little bit on Instagram, but I don't like it because it's, you know, owned by Facebook now. Uh-huh. Uh, but I'm, I hang out on Twitter, as you know. And but yeah, you can come. And if you go to my website, uh, sign up for my mailing list. I send out something every Monday called Monday Musing. And I usually it's a quote or a poem. And then I ask a powerful question for you to step into and to live into for the week. Um, and that's where you can find me right now. More stuff will be coming in the fall and in the winter. I've got some projects I'm starting to work on. I'm excited about, uh, awesome. but, no- but nothing yet, but yeah, come hang out with me there. And in the fall, I'll be starting another round of true North also. Oh, nice. So if, you, so if you come and go, come check out my website and get on my mailing list, you will get, you will find out about that because I will certainly send that out and invite everyone on my mailing list to come do the course. Mm-hmm. Very awesome. And also, of course, check out on HBO, HBO Max, uh, George Carlin's American Dream, which is fantastic documentary, if I do say so myself. And, uh, you know, everything you're doing is awesome. I, you know, I couldn't thank you enough as somebody who has gone through a metric fuck ton of things in my life. <laughs> everything, <laughs> uh, everything that you're doing is fantastic. Um, you know. You. You're, you're really doing a good thing. So thank you very much for that. And again, thank you for doing the show. Um, anybody that's out there, that's listening. If you, like we talked about on the show, like if you need somebody to talk to, um, there are people out there, help is out there. And also you can message me anytime you want. If you want to message me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, any of that stuff, and you just need to vent. If you have some shit that's going on in your head, you just need to get it out of your system light my messages up. I'm fine with it. I think it's great, you know, and if it helps you more power to you, I'm happy to do that. Um, but that's why we do this show. So thank you very much. This has been the Traumedy hour, Kelly Carlin yet again. Thank you so much for doing the show. It was an absolute pleasure having you here tonight. Thank you. All right. We will see you guys, uh, next week. This has been the Traumedy hour. Thank you so much.